Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Peter Sabota. Thanks for downloading more than 300,000 of our podcasts. We'd love it if you took a minute to tell us what you like or don't like about them and what you'd like to see us do next. If you're an educator and you are using our podcasts in your courses, please let us know how. I know some of you are, as I've seen them on course syllabi out there. So let us know. Go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcasts and click the contact us button. We'd be thrilled to hear from you. Hi from Buffalo. Although we're on the other end of the state, it would seem silly not to acknowledge that all of us have been thinking and reflecting on the devastation and suffering that has taken place in our downstate region in New York City, New Jersey, and other nearby mid-Atlantic states. Our positive thoughts are with the millions of people whose lives have been impacted by Hurricane Sandy and we are all reminded of how fragile our existence really is. In this podcast, Dr. Alan Barsky discusses specific ethical issues in end-of-life decision-making. He brings together his training and experience as an attorney and social worker to offer a rich perspective on engaging clients, family members, and other professionals in discussions and problem-solving when conflict about end-of-life decision-making occurs. Dr. Barsky discusses his framework for managing ethical decision-making processes and provides an extensive example of the application of his framework. He describes what he believes social workers need to know to be helpful in these situations, including the importance of worker self-awareness, and concludes with insights about the impact of culture and religious beliefs in this often difficult process. Alan Barsky, J.D., MSW, PhD, is Professor of Social Work at Florida Atlantic University and incoming Chair of the National Ethics Committee of the National Association of Social Workers. His book authorships include Ethics and Values in Social Work, Conflict Resolution for the Helping Professions, and Clinicians in Court. Dr. Barsky uses a collaborative, process-oriented approach to analyzing and managing ethical dilemmas. Dr. Barsky was interviewed by phone by our own end-of-life expert, Dr. Deborah Waldrop, professor at the UB School of Social Work. Hi, Dr. Barsky. Thank you for sharing with us today. I would just like to start by asking if you could give us a brief background of sort of your journey, how you came to be interested in the area of values and ethics for elders. I think for many of us who are interested just in ethics, generally it comes from the family that we grew up in. And for myself, my parents were very focused on our participation as members of the community and doing what's right and just being good people was part of our religious background. And they were always very strong supporters of just community involvement and activity and just honesty and integrity were very strongly promoted. So it wasn't that I chose specifically to go into ethics or particularly end-of-life decision-making, but just a general interest in being good and what does it mean to be good. My actual professional 
career started out in law, not social work, and I think there's a big tie-in between law and social work. So when I went to law school, I did learn about professional ethics from legal perspective, and then when I went into my social work program at the University of University in New York, I also was quite interested in ethics, so sort of fell into it that way, and my interest is in ethics generally, and end-of-life decision-making is certainly one of the areas of interest, but not the only interest. Okay. That's really interesting. I think you bring a real depth to this coming from the merged backgrounds of both law and social work. So you bring a really interesting, helpful perspective to this topic. So I'm wondering if you could tell us what you mean by the phrase end-of-life decision-making, or if you could describe that in some detail for us. Sure. The first part of it is just to look at the word decision-making. and These are the choices that people make in their lives. And when we talk about end-of-life decision-making, we're just talking about choices that people make towards the end of their life. So perhaps the last few months, perhaps six to nine months, but it really depends on the situation. And the decisions can be made by different people. Ideally, we often think that the individual has to make the choice on their own behalf, and that certainly fits well with um, the concept of client self-determination. But also, end-of-life decision-making has an impact on family, friends, and community, and we need to look at, well, when should they be involved? Certainly, if there are mental capacity issues or there's issues where people can't make decisions on their own behalf, then someone has to make the decision for them. Most end-of-life decisions are not very controversial, so I like to encourage students to think about end-of-life decisions very broadly, and when you're engaging clients in these types of discussions, it's helpful for people to perhaps engage in some of the easier decisions first. So a person who has been diagnosed with cancer, for example, it's not just a matter of do they have treatment or stop getting treatment, but it may be there's several choices of treatment, There's several different choices of where they live, how they live, who's going to help take care of them. And so there's many decisions that are not all that controversial. Is prayer, is having pastoral counseling important to that person? Who should be surrounding them? What sort of activities should they be involved in? So many of those decisions are not very controversial. We see in the newspaper the cases where there's families disputing whether or not somebody should be on life supports, or we hear about these death panels in the media. So we sometimes assume that all end-of-life decision-making situations are very controversial and very difficult, but for most people, it's not so difficult. I agree. I think it's the 80-20 rule that 80% of the decisions about the end of life are not that controversial and not that challenging, but it's the 20% that get the most attention. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the more challenging ethical issues that do arise when individuals and their families are faced with end-of-life decision-making. Sure. One of the toughest areas is when there's disagreements between the individual who's at end of life and family members, or perhaps even the individual doesn't have mental decision-making capacity, so it's just family members who are having a tough time. So there's some types of -of end-of-life decision-making that we disagree on because of our religious beliefs or ethical beliefs, and sometimes it's just we have a different understanding of what the person would like. So if we are in a situation where somebody is in a end-of-life state, their quality of life is not very good, perhaps the doctors have said that they're going to die of an illness within several days or weeks or months, and the family has to make decisions about what type of treatment and support to provide. So the law gives people choices about if they're on life-sustaining treatment throughout the United States, it's possible for people to withdraw the life supports or for 
family members or whoever the decision makers are to withdraw life supports. And so if you've got somebody who is unconscious, hasn't been able to express what their will is, and the family members are uncertain about what would the person like, that tends to be one of the more challenging types of situations. Could you please just share with us some of your perspectives on how capacity really influences um, someone's ability to consent? Absolutely. When a person has mental capacity, we're saying that they have the right to express their will and we should follow their will. So that fits in with self-determination and the concept of informed consent. And the way that we determine mental capacity is according to a number of different factors. Is the person able to think rationally? Is the person able to understand the nature of the decisions? Is the person able to understand and weigh the benefits and risks of the decisions that they might be involved in? Does the person have sufficient memory capacities? And so for many clients, there's no real need to assess it. We just, from talking to them, know that they've got sufficient mental capacity to make such decisions. But if you've got somebody who's at end-of-life stage, there may be a number of things that are complicating their ability to make decisions on their own behalf. First, it could be if it's a crisis situation, are they just overwhelmed by the crisis? Are there such levels of anxiety so they're, they're really not able to make decisions on their own behalf? And if that's the case, if it's just a temporary crisis, rather than asking somebody to make a permanent big decision for themselves, are we able to delay the decision or do we need somebody to make a temporary decision on their behalf and when they're able to make a more permanent decision, we can come back to them. On the other hand, it could be a situation where it's the treatment, particularly medication, that might be impairing their capacity. Again, rather than saying that let's make decisions on the person's behalf because the sleeping pills or the painkillers are messing with their ability to think, why don't we find a time where they're not so heavily medicated so that we can hear them and we can allow them to express their self-determination. One of the myths is that if uh, the medical advice is inconsistent with what the client is saying that they would like, proceed with treatment, withdraw treatment, etc., that that person lacks mental capacity. And I think doctors have to be careful about that and social workers need to be aware of the possibility that sometimes there's a tendency to say that people don't have mental capacity because they're just not making the same choice that the professionals involved in the case would make. In some cases, you've got situations where a person has dementia or Alzheimer's, and again, they may not be in a situation where they can make some decisions in their life, but capacity is not an all-or-nothing type of issue. They might be able to make decisions about their general health care, who they see, who they don't see, some of the medical decisions, even though they might not be able to make decisions about other more complicated issues. If there's a particular type of surgery, you may need to get the consent of a family member on the person's behalf. But as much as possible, you try to honor the will of the person, even if they don't have full mental capacity. There's a whole chapter in the book on mental health issues and some of the myths that are involved. And I think it's, it's very just sort of easy to slip into, you know, let's just make decisions for this person because they've got dementia, they've got mental illness. And even in my own situation, when my mother wasn't able to make decisions on her own behalf, we would still talk to her, show her respect, and try to figure out as much as possible what she would want at that particular point in time. The, the big issue with the advanced directives is that we don't know at the time that we sign the advanced directive what's actually the situation that's going to trigger the implementation of that advanced directive, and it may be different than what we were expecting.
Absolutely. We don't have a crystal ball. None of us know what's around the next bend in the road. I think that decisions are made in the context of families, for sure, but also in the context of agencies and in the greater social context. So really, then, I guess, leads to the question of what types of guidance to agency policy and the law give us about helping clients at the end of life, and more specifically, how might ethics and the law come into conflict? Sure. Perhaps starting with where they do jive, for many types of decisions, they do fit together. We believe social workers in the client's right to self-determination, and most social agencies would also say that self-determination is one of the most important rights that we have. And so there are many laws that support a client to right to self-determination. A person, as I said before, can decide whether or not to continue with treatments. People are allowed to accept treatments, to refuse treatments. And so if somebody, again, with uh, cancer has been offered chemotherapy, but they find for whatever reason that they don't think it would be helpful or the risks are more than the potential benefits, they're allowed to deny that. We do get into some situations where the law does not allow us to exercise our full right to self-determination. So in most states in the United States, we're not allowed to ask our professionals to help us terminate our lives, to commit suicide, sometimes called physician-assisted suicide. So there are some states like Washington State and Oregon where there are provisions and there is a procedure to allow people to make those sorts of choices, but in many states, we're not allowed to have those choices. Okay, thank you. Certainly in my own practice, in my work with students, I know that social workers are key in terms of helping families and clients approach decision-making. And specifically, I get the question a lot that wondering if you can tell us what social workers need to know in order to approach dealing with decision-making between clients and families in an ethical manner. One of the first things that I talk about with students is just the self-awareness piece. What are their beliefs? What are their feelings towards issues like passive euthanasia or active euthanasia? Or what are their concepts around um, death and people's choice with end-of-life decision-making issues? So if you've got somebody who, because of religious beliefs, believes that life is sacrosanct, that it's important to honor God's will and to not do anything that could interfere with the preservation of life, that may be very good for them, but it creates some problems, creates some challenges if they're working with other people who have different religious beliefs, or perhaps they even share the same religious beliefs, but when they're experiencing a situation where they have to make tough choices, they may want something different than what they've aspired to previously in life. And we know as social workers, it's important not to impose our values on our clients, and we have to know when our beliefs and our feelings are getting in the way of our work. So I first suggested people get in touch with their own beliefs and feelings towards these issues and make use of supervision or other supports so that they don't allow these feelings and beliefs to interfere. Absolutely. You've developed a framework for managing ethical issues that I think is really very helpful. I'm wondering if you could describe that for us and just tell us how that might be useful in helping social workers who are supporting decision-making. Sure. The one thing that I like to stress in this is ethical issues are issues that can be ongoing and that ethical issues occur in a context. So we need to be able to make decisions in the context of work with other people, whether it's our co-workers, our supervisors, and certainly with our clients. So this is a framework for managing ethical issues, not just an ethical decision-making framework. Some of the frameworks that are out there, they really focus on if I have an ethical issue, how do I apply ethical reasoning and how do I figure out what's the best response? 
Now we can figure out what the best response is, and that's certainly part of the process, but we also need to be able to work with others because if I can't convince my coworkers or my supervisor or my agency of the right thing to do, then it really isn't all that helpful. Or in the context of working with uh, clients, it may seem like a really tough situation if myself and my client and my agency disagree, but if I have a way of managing conflict, effectively, we might be able to come up with solutions that aren't tearing us apart, but ones that help us build consensus. So for me, the first step in the model is just identifying an ethical issue exists, being aware when there's some sort of challenge. The second step is being able to determine who would be appropriate help, reaching out to supervisors, attorneys, ethicists, hospital ethics committees, often in the case of them of life decision making, and then working through the issues together with them, knowing who you can trust and who you can keep the issues confidential with. The next stage is we do apply some critical thinking, so ourselves and our supervisors or whoever's helping us need to be able to look at what are the relevant values, the relevant ethics, the relevant laws, the relevant agency policies, and then what are the ways that ethical principles and ethical approaches to decision-making can help us think about these issues. And then once we've thought about what is the best approach for dealing with these issues, we look at how do we actually engage others in the process of managing the conflict around the ethical issues. It's not always the case, but sometimes when we present our preferred approach with other people, they disagree with us. And so if we could use dialogue or perhaps a mediation process or some type of conflict resolution that can help us work together towards a consensual approach to dealing with the conflict. It's better than us just trying to impose our decisions on others. The fifth step is planning and implementing the decisions. It's not sufficient just to have a good decision, a good plan of action, but we actually have to make sure that we put it into effect effectively. So it may be that I'm working with a client who initially doesn't want to talk about end-of-life decision-making, and I go back to my supervisor, and we talk about it for a while, and the supervisor says, well, there's no crisis right now, so why don't we just monitor things and see how things go? And it may be that later on, as you develop a different relationship with the client or build trust with the client, you may be able to go back and explore some of those issues. Or perhaps the situation becomes more of a crisis and you need to bring in family or others, and you need to be able to go back to the ethical issues and look at, okay, what do we do at this point? Then after we've implemented our decisions, the final stage is evaluation and follow-up. And at that stage, you look at, well, what were we trying to achieve in terms of the ethical issues? How well were we able to achieve them? Where might we need to go back and reevaluate and uh, look at what we're doing in this particular case? And also going to more of the macro issue, how do we make sure that we prevent some of the problems in this case or create policies that support us to have better ethical decision-making in the future? It's a really very nice framework. I think it's very applicable to agency practice in many different settings. And again, it's a very helpful educational tool, I think, specifically from the standpoint of being an educator. I'm wondering if you could give an example of an ethical issue and how you might suggest that a social worker manages the situation. Yes, let's take the case of Karina. Karina is a 60-year-old woman. She's been involved in a car accident, and because of the accident, she's in a persistent vegetative state. So she has no consciousness. There is no sense that she is going to come out of this state in any period of time that we wait. And also, she has signed an organ donor card. You've also got Karina's husband, who has a healthcare proxy. Her husband, Fritz, wants to maintain Karina on life supports. 
And the healthcare proxy is not really clear on what Fritz should do because of the existence of the donor card. So in one sense, Fritz is the one who has the obligation and the responsibility to make decisions on Karina's behalf. But on the other hand, there's this organ donor card that says that Karina's wishes for her organs to be used to help other people. Let's say in this situation, you've got two professionals who are involved, a doctor and a social worker. Both of them would like to use Karina's organs as soon as possible. The sooner that they can harvest and use the organs, the better chance that there is to maximize the chance of saving the life of others. Perhaps there's even a particular person who could use the organs right now, and it's a good match. So there's some pressure on the hospital or the doctor to try to make use of the organs as soon as possible. And the problem is the longer that the person is on life supports, the more difficult it is to have the organ transplants, and especially if there's a particular person who could benefit right away. So the first stage of the process is just recognizing that there's an ethical issue here. And sometimes because we're motivated in a particular way, we might not be conscious of it. The fact that the it would be a good thing to make use of Karina's organs to help others, might be telling the doctor and the social worker, well, obviously, here's a client who's not going to get better. There's no cure for her vegetative state. She has an organ donor card, so she's expressed her will. Why not just go ahead and do this? And so the issue for the doctor and perhaps the social worker is to recognize that Fritz plays a role in this, even if you start off with the concept that uh, Karina is the one whose interests and wishes we should be representing, we have to take Fritz's perspective into account. Absolutely. This story just really brings these issues to life, all these conflicts. Right. And it's not that this is the most common type of situation, but certainly one of the more challenging situations. And I think if students can work through some of these more challenging situations, then the easier ones come into place as well. But these are based on real situations. So here, one of the things for the social worker to do is just realize, okay, there is an issue. What I would like to do is different from what Fritz would like to do, and I need to reach out for help. So who can I talk to? It may be talking to the doctor to really gain a better understanding of Karina's medical situation. She's not sure what does persistent vegetative state mean, what are the medical issues that are involved with transplants, what are the medical issues in terms of Karina's expected lifespan and what that would do if they don't take actions at an early stage. But not to just rely on the doctor that's the primary physician for this situation, but there may be other doctors, is a hospital situation, so there should also be an ethics committee. And so some of these cases, the best thing to do is to actually consult those whose specific role is to review cases and to gather information and to give some guidance on what's the best approach. Presumably, the social worker also has a supervisor, so it'd also be very helpful to talk to the supervisor about this. There may or may not be any specific legal issues involved here, so you would perhaps consider consulting with an attorney or perhaps there's an attorney that's on the ethics committee. So those would be probably the main people that you would consult in terms of the second stage of the process. The third stage of the process is critical thinking, and sometimes students and social workers will ask me, well, how do you know where to start or what to do? And there isn't a 
you know, cookbook that tells you this is the first step, this is the second step, this is the third step, uh, you may need to make use of a range of different steps. So I would like students to look at, well, what is the more clear or black letter guidance? And then look at, well, if there isn't clear guidance or there's conflicts between those directives that we have, then how do we resolve them? And so here the areas where you may look for the clear or the black letter guidance are what does the NESW Code of Ethics say, what does the law say, and what does the agency or hospital policy say. So if we look to our Code of Ethics, you would look to areas like self-determination and 1.01, our primary commitment is towards our client. So in this situation, you have to look at, well, who is our client? Is our client Karina? Is our client Fritz? Or is it the couple? In this situation, in terms of defining client, I would say that there's a potential conflict between Karina's wishes and Fritz's wishes, so it may actually be helpful for there to be separate social workers who might be advancing each of their interests. So if I'm a social worker and I say that I'm really representing Karina, if Fritz doesn't have somebody who's providing support, then it may be helpful for the social worker to link Fritz up with some sort of advocate, perhaps an attorney, perhaps a patient advocate or a social work advocate who can help them, them through it. If you have different interests, you don't want to be in a situation where you have to choose one over the other. Each person, whether they have mental capacity or not, has an interest in having their a separate advocate for them. So in terms of the issue around organ donation, our code of ethics is generally silent. We talk about primary commitment is towards our client, but we should look at the interests of greater society. So that could include the interests of potential recipients of organ donations. Our code of ethics is not so clear on what our obligations are to family members. So again, it leaves us open to how do we define what are our responsibilities to Fritz as opposed to our responsibilities to Karina. Then it's important to look at the, what the laws say in terms of organ donation and in terms of healthcare proxies. So if somebody does sign an organ donor card, does that mean that the organs need to be harvested and donated at the earliest possible time? who makes the decision, if the decision is based on the concept of when the person is dead from a legal perspective, then again, who's making that decision and how do we inform Fritz or other family members about when that actually takes place. So there's the legal aspect as, as well. In terms of hospital policy, you want to look at how they define the same types of issues as are defined in law. Hopefully the hospital's policies and practices are consistent with what the law says on those issues. But again, you're going to have situations where the patient may be a good candidate for organ donation, but if the family isn't ready for that, does the hospital really want to engage in a procedure that goes against the husband's declared wishes? So in this situation, you might look at the next stage, which is the conflict resolution perspective. Maybe what we need to do is just bring the different people together to have a dialogue so that Fritz can be informed about the current state of his wife. Maybe he doesn't really understand what the nature of persistent vegetative state is. Likewise, perhaps 
Fritz really needs to inform the doctor, the social worker in the hospital about his wife's wishes and that perhaps if he informs them that she did believe that it was important to be able to remain on life supports as long as possible. Perhaps he did believe in the sanctity of life, so doing anything that might risk the sanctity of her own life might be something that the hospital needs to prioritize as well. And by bringing them together, perhaps just by gaining understanding with each other, they might come up with some sort of solution. It's not true that every single organ is going to become less viable over time. It may be that if Karina is maintained on life supports for a period of time, then perhaps the patient that they're currently considering for organ donation may not get the organ that they're looking at, but perhaps there'll be other people who can benefit from the organs in the future. So rather than looking at it as a win-lose or my way or no way, they can look at, well, there may be some other options that are involved here. So it can get very complicated. I can't tell you exactly how the situation would be resolved here, but it may be that through the use of a social worker or mediator who guides the discussion and just listens carefully to Fritz, we might be able to get a solution that all the people involved in the process can agree upon. Now, we might go back to some of the critical thinking approaches, like looking at this from a utilitarian perspective, and utilitarian perspective says, well, let's try to do what's for the greatest good of the greatest number, and someone's analysis of the greatest good for the greatest number may be, it's saying that it's important to make use of the organs to save the lives or to provide the best quality of life for as many people as possible. Other people might take that calculation and say, well, how can you put a value on Karina's life, even if she is in a persistent vegetative state, there's value to her life regardless. Other people might come from a more teleological approach, and that approach says we really need to look at what are the universal duties and what are the universal obligations. And if someone understands that our we have a universal obligation to maintain life, they may say that, well, regardless of whether organs from Karina can be used to save other people, we have to save her life. As a father or as a husband, as a doctor, as a social worker working with Karina, we can't sacrifice her life just for the benefit of other people. Other people might say that, well, really the primary duty that we have to look at is the duty to honor the client's right to self-determination. And here we've got a little bit of a mix. Karina has expressed her self-determination in two different ways. On the one hand, she says that if I do die, I would like my organs to be used for the benefit of others. But she also says in her self-determination that if I'm not able to make decisions on my own behalf, I'd like Fritz to be able to make those decisions for me. Now, for me in this situation, I would probably look at it as saying that, well, Karina is in a persistent vegetative state. That does not mean that her death is imminent. And so if she has a healthcare proxy and Fritz is following the healthcare proxy, we really shouldn't be putting pressure on him to do anything that cuts her life shorter. If she's specifically said that she wants to be maintained on life supports indefinitely, then to withdraw those life supports in order to harvest her organs seems to go against what Fritz wants and what Karina wants. And so the doctor and social worker really should not be putting pressure on Fritz to withdraw those life supports early. And I also like to encourage people to look at, well, 
if this case is decided this way, what sort of precedent does it set in other cases? So would we feel in the future that it's okay for medical professionals to put pressure on family members so that organs from a particular patient can be harvested to benefit somebody else? And if we go down that path, we might not like all of the results. Thank you for that. It's a really, really helpful explanation and a really rich case example that I think people can get their heads around trying to understand the complexity of this. It's really helpful. I'm also thinking that so many of the factors that you describe in this case scenario, the same decision scenario could be very different when you think about different cultural and religious factors. Others, the social context can really shape how decisions are made too. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about how culture and religion factor into ethical issues and into end-of-life decision-making. When we talk about end-of-life decision-making, culture, religious beliefs, spirituality, our political affiliations, all of those things have a a huge bearing on the way that people view those end-of-life decision-making and also the way that they view their family and their family's involvement in that type of decision-making. There are many cultures where it's important not to interfere with the either the natural flow of things or with God's will. And so if you believe that life is sacrosanct and only God or whatever your higher power is, whoever your higher power is, should have those decisions, then people from that perspective would not want to remove life-sustaining treatment, perhaps. They wouldn't want to certainly become involved in physician-assisted suicide or termination of life. Also, with um, some traditional backgrounds, Native American and some Asian and other backgrounds, there's the concept of fate and not interfering with uh, fate. And so just talking about end-of-life decision-making can be very difficult for some people. It may be a a taboo area for cultural or uh, religious reasons. We would like to, as social workers, honor people's self-determination and extend their self-determination. So social workers in hospitals and some healthcare settings might like to encourage people to sign advanced healthcare directives to let people know what should happen if they are in an end-of-life state and what decisions should be made on their behalf or who should make those decisions. Some people don't even want to entertain those. We as social workers may think, well, why wouldn't a person want their wishes known? But if the person's religious beliefs go against that, then again, we shouldn't impose our beliefs, even if it's something that we think is going to prevent complications down the line. I know that in my own family, I lost my mother this past year, and my partner and I, our families had very different ideas about end-of-life decision-making. My parents talked about the end of their life for the last probably 20 years of their life, and they were very well prepared. My partner's family doesn't have wills, doesn't have end-of-life decision-making directives, and it's going to make things perhaps more complicated. But again, you have to start with the clients and the people that you have, not the clients and people that you wish you have. With all the description that you gave, it's so clear that these are very personal situations and that for each of us, bringing our own personal views and perspectives and life experiences, I think, do shape our practice. I'm wondering if you could tell us, how do you think a social worker should respond to a situation when his or her personal beliefs tell him or her to proceed in a particular way, but professionally, beliefs really indicate that another path should be followed? I think one of the the main things is just recognizing that there is that conflict between what your personal beliefs are telling you and what your professional beliefs and professional obligations are. 
some people would say, well, we've just got one set of values and one set of ethics, but regardless of whether you look at it as separate professional and personal ethics, we do have to look at ethics in terms of the in, in terms of the social context. So what I do for myself and my own family isn't necessarily what I would do in the context of working with clients. And I think if we can sometimes put ourselves in the other person's position. So if I were coming from a belief system that said it's inappropriate to terminate people's lives early. It's not appropriate to withdraw life supports when we can extend someone's life supports. And I don't think that my clients should do that. I like to do the role reversal with clients and have the student play the client's role with somebody who might be imposing their wishes on them. So just as the student might not like to be told that life is not sacrosanct, how would they like it if they were in the other person's position and they were being told that they should make use of these religious beliefs and what they're doing is offending God, what they're doing is sinful, what they're doing is bad. And so I think sometimes through the process of role reversal, people can see that you know what they do for themselves really isn't necessarily appropriate with how they would work with clients in a professional context. I think that this is probably the most important part of it. I know that whenever I teach end-of-life decision-making and I begin talking about end-of-life care, I really think it's critical for all of us, students and professionals alike, to think about what it is we believe and really understand our own attitudes because that can so shape your interactions when you're not even realizing it or you're not recognizing what you're bringing into the picture. So I think that's a really key piece of it, and I really appreciate I appreciate that, and I appreciate the framework that you've provided. And I'm just thinking that that's a really useful thing, and hopefully we can publicize that through this for you because I think it's really useful in practice. Thank you. I think also when we're looking at issues that are related to religion, we have to make sure that we're talking about a broad range of religions and also people within each religion may have different points of view. And I've talked to some ethicists not in social work and they say, why do you even bother talking about religion? You know, this is ethics, this is not religion. But we're talking about social work practice and ethics is part of it and religion is part of it. And so when the student says that they need to prayer, I say embrace it. You need to make use of what works for you, but you can't impose that on your clients. So you might just take a few moments alone before meeting with the client or after meeting with the client and have your prayer. You can consult with your religious teachings, but we also need to look at what are our professional teachings, our legal obligations, and our agency obligations. And whereas in personal life people may say, well, religion always triumphs, we have to be really careful about that in the context of social work practice. Absolutely. Back in the day when I was in graduate school, religion was not something we talked about. It was very long ago. We didn't talk about religion or spirituality or people's personal beliefs at all. It was outside the box. I'm really glad to see that it's made its way into the mainstream and that you really promote it as part of the ethical decision-making. I think that's so important for all of us to recognize from where we come. Yeah, and people draw such strength from religion and spirituality generally, and especially in end-of-life care. We don't want to say, you know, ignore that, put that aside. It may be something very soothing and comforting or gives people the right type of guidance, but we still have to be careful with how social workers use it. 
So I really appreciate your expertise and your willingness to share that with us. I think this is going to be really excellent. I always think about these as a learning tool for my students, but, you know, it gets such wide usage. I, mean, I think we've been in multiple countries and so many downloads. So I think you can expect to hear from people when they listen to this after a while. So thank you for your work and thank you for sharing with us. I really appreciate the chance to get to know you a little bit today. You have been listening to Dr. Alan Barsky discuss ethical decision-making in end-of-life care on Living Proof. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.